part of this was not to downsize at all. It was to do better science, more effectively, use the incredible knowledge that people have take them away from the data wrangling where they were spending hours and hours of their day cleaning up in Excel data sets. Like they would spend weeks and weeks on it at various points of their collection cycle. And by saying, well, that will be removed, it's not that your job's not needed, but now you can spend that time on the analysis, which is the high value that you bring as a scientific specialist. The first data futurology event for next year is going to be OpsWorld, data-centric operations for business value. We're going to be hosting the community in person at the Sofitel Wentworth in Sydney on March 14th and 15th. We're going to be discussing operationalizing securely for business value, impact and scale. What are we operationalizing? Everything across the data analytics and AI space. We're bringing all the ops perspectives together into this one event. So it's going to be data ops, operationalizing data pipelines, analytics ops, operationalizing our analytics, MLOps and AI ops about operationalizing machine learning and artificial intelligence in our businesses. We're going to be discussing processes, frameworks, the observability and the future of this space. Check out the website for more and hope to see you there. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia-wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights, business intelligence, data product managers, and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project focus, data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with. Whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. This is Felipe Flores. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have a really great episode ahead. We're going to be talking about data transformations. We're going to be talking about the human side and then how to help the organization adopt the products and the services that are coming out of data analytics and ML and AI projects and transformations. For that, we have an excellent, excellent guest, Tamara Mirkovic. Tamara, welcome to the show. How are you going today? I'm great. Thank you, Salif. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. So first of all, I wanted to ask if you can tell us about your role and your remit at the moment, and then we can take it from there. Yeah, fantastic. So at the moment, I'm the program manager for a new data and information insights program at the University of New England. So they're based in New South Wales in Armidale in Australia, which is a small rural town. It's a really exciting project because we're trying to uplift the entire capability of the university to enable them to attract more students and be more agile in this new online learning environment. Um, and adapt to all the changes to tertiary education since COVID. And so it's a significant investment that the university is putting in and I'm establishing the program from the ground up. So it's a really good time to be involved. 
yeah, lots happening on the visualization side and the building a new platform as well using the cloud tech. So that's always exciting as well. Wow. So yeah, completely. Yeah. From the ground up, that's really exciting. And um, what was the the state of the project when you came in? Was it a, a blank sheet? There were was some things in, in motion? Oh, there was a, a visionary business case. But as we know, a lot of the visionary, uh, I guess, of goals aren't always practical or implementable immediately. So we've really had to take a step back and say, well, what's our current capability and look at, you know, even just baseline data literacy levels amongst the university staff and then plan a way forward to mature things. You obviously can't do a big bang um, implementation that, that very rarely works. So we're just going to take it step by step and, you know, slowly incrementally build up maturity and capability where it makes sense and focus on the high value areas like better insights about teaching and learning mm -hmm. so that the university can improve how it delivers its courses and, you know, attract and retain students and that sort of thing. That's great. That's great. And um, in doing um, such a, huge transformation project how how do you chunk it down what what are some of the the main components that get um, attention first and the sort of main components that will get attention later uh, what does that um, that landscape look like yeah, that's a really good question. So it's it can be really overwhelming, particularly when you first join a new you know organization that you often get hit with, numerous stories of pain points this is broken this is siloed no one knows what's going on so there's a lot of I guess an avalanche of difficulties around data and that happens in a lot of places um, not just in in UNE but you know there are challenges all over the institution and it's the the first step is to understand where the the biggest pain points are that are common across all the, the stakeholder groups so that then you can focus your energy on fixing the common problems and not so much focusing on the outlier scenarios that although might be quite pressing at the time, um, they can often, I guess, sway the in the focus and the investment into a very niche area. So we're very conscious about using our funds in the best possible way to give the most benefit of value. So a lot of that comes down to very good requirements gathering, understanding, really understanding the business well and not making assumptions up front. So I've spent the last few months really trying to understand how the university functions and where could we make the best improvements with how we use data and so I think it's it's like a big puzzle that you just piece together and and then work as work on the 80 percent rule of you know if 80 percent of the stakeholders would benefit from this upgrade then let's focus on that yeah that's great that's great and what are some of the um, the main challenges that in your experience that people will come across in doing a, a digital transformation and, and, and a data transformation uh, in organizations? Yeah, I mean, I could 
speak to maybe not so much on my current program of work, yeah. um, but previously I've worked in the Department of Environment and Science and we did a really big transformational program there that spanned about five or six years. And there were some really key challenges there around, you know, that we had a lot of experts in using data in terms of scientists being very data savvy. They're great at collecting, cataloging, tracking data all the way through the life cycle. But where they were struggling was use of new tools and technologies because they're just so embedded in the way things have always been done and very hands-on with the process. Um, and so a lot of the challenges were even just trust, trust mm. in using new tools, in transforming a process that has worked for 10 to 20 years um, and entrusting a new project team to, I guess, remodel and reshape how they do their work. It's quite daunting. So uh, we have a lot of human challenges around that. And there's always that fear of, uh, I guess, the unknown, but also about, well, can I trust the, the automation that you know, our new data tools will provide We'll do the same job as a human, like that QAs the data at every step and cleans it and makes nuanced, I guess, um, I yeah, nuanced kind of cleansing of the data. So it's difficult to say, well, the machine will do that perfectly every time. And so there were those sorts of struggles. There's also that open data policy. So we very much implemented the FAIR principles. So, you know, that making sure that whatever scientists are building could be reused by other mm -hmm. groups, that they weren't just looking in their own silo all the time. And that it was always, you know, repeatable and had, you know, really solid foundations of um, being integrated, interoperable and having lineage, version control, all these like core concepts that we needed to prove before the scientists would trust us with their data. So it was, it was quite a lot of um, trust building, I would say, activity before we even got into the technical landscape. Yeah, exactly. Huge, um, huge hurdle. Um, and it's so, so common in, in digital transformations and in organizations where there's new capabilities uh, or up updated, I guess, te technical capabilities that then um, we have to also get the workforce to be excited about engaging with that, with that technology. Um, in my case, I work in, in healthcare in a health tech um, company. And uh, we have people that are ex-clinicians, like uh, medical doctors and uh, physios and nurses and things like that, that have done um, data science training or uh, IT, and they've become analysts and, and software engineers. And having the, the knowledge of the, the domain knowledge and the technical knowledge in the same brain is hugely beneficial. But what I've noticed, uh, similar to what you're saying, is that they're great at working independently and solving really hard problems with that combined domain knowledge and technical skill. And they get answers really quickly, but they're not repeatable. They don't have lineage. They're not adopting uh, the, the, the platforms, the cloud platforms that we have in a way that it can be 
um, that the code can be shared, uh, that it can be collaborated on. And we've definitely had to work on getting them comfortable with uh, with following that that approach and, um, and and sharing essentially and being able to have other people build upon their work or them building upon other people's work. How how have you gone in winning that trust and changing that mindset for people to become uh, to all come into the same ecosystem of of tools and approaches? Yeah, that that was a really interesting journey. Um, so I had I did learn from a few failed attempts actually, which might be worth covering. Um, my first attempt to embed ch- the change was really just to showcase how amazing the tools were, and that approach fell really flat. So we picked a group in science um, that worked on. I think it was hydrology or water-related science. And so we really did a hard sell of here's the architecture, the before and the future state process map, and look at the amazing savings you'll get in human manual effort that will be reduced so you can do better science, less data wrangling. That was our sales pitch. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just a real surprise how that landed with the business and they were not very keen to sign up even after all the glossy, you know, showcasing and we had all our architects present. And so we had the best and brightest of our team, you know, selling the vision of how amazing this new platform will be. Um, But what we couldn't really understand was what was going on in their minds and as they were listening Mm. to the pitch and a lot of the concerns were not vocalized initially. So we got like some buy-in, a little bit of buy-in, and we thought, great, everyone's on board, and we just started rolling. Um, but it became apparent that not everyone was supportive of the change, and it took a, a, lo- a long time for us to unpack, well, why is there resistance? You know, people are not showing up to workshops. They're not coming to the showcases. Um, so, like, suddenly it was just this sort of disconnect happened in the project. And you can't have a project where the business is not leading as well. Mm-hmm. So using trying to lead with the tech just didn't work out yeah. at all. Um, and the more we tried to sell it, I think the less the trust was. And I think it felt like, well, you're pushing this new platform on us and we don't know if it's in our best interest. Like, what about our job safety? I don't know if, if I can trust the outputs of your modeling. And, um, you know, all, there were a lot of concerns raised and a lot of them were legitimate, but things we just hadn't considered upfront. So that was an interesting learning experience. We had a highly resistant uh, group to start with that just essentially the project stopped. It just completely stopped dead where we could not get it over the line no matter what we did. So we decided to just pause it and we engaged with another group in science that was very willing and actually quite keen to explore. So um, their mindset was a bit different. They had maybe a higher um, literacy level in the new tool set anyway, and some of them were... I guess you could say more on the leading edge tech adoption side of the curve. So I think you've got to find the right stakeholder that can be your champion. Mm -hmm. So we found some scientists that were like the champions that wanted to do 
more than what they were doing. So they signed up um, willingly and we said, okay, we'll work with you, even though we weren't sure if their use case was as impressive as the other group mm -hmm. because we'd modeled it and said, well, there's a huge benefit here. But then we thought, look, let's try and do a small win with this other group that was very willing and engaged. And what we realized was once we had uh, a good news story to share across the other science groups, and we said, here's an example of what we've done. It was a small scale, but it showed what was possible. And it wasn't just theory or architecture or conceptual diagrams. It was a real life scientific process that we had re-engineered to be far more efficient and give you know results at the push of a button on a mobile device you can work from anywhere and it really impressed a lot of the I guess the more resistant groups and who then became more willing to talk to us after that so I think lead with success showcase what's possible in a real life context. I think that's really important, mm. no matter what the business is. So if your business is, I don't know, accounting or finance, you would have to, first of all, I think, do a proof of concept or a pilot and showcase what's possible in the context of the business to get the buy-in and say, oh, I understand what this means now. It's not just hypothetical, wish wishy-washy tech talk. Um, and I think that gained a lot of trust. And as it turned out, the resistant group did come back the following year and they were more willing to say, okay, we're ready to engage now. So that, that was a good win. That's a huge win. Yeah, that's a huge win across the board. So interesting. I love the focus on the on the users, like on the how you're zeroing in on the the people that had to make the change and had to come to the new world um, and in getting them so engaged on the new process. Um, that's that's really good. How, and tell me, what was the what was the leadership support like uh, before uh, or I guess leading up to the engagement with the users and then during the the initial uh, resistance from the first group and then going on to the second group. How was the, the leadership engagement um, and support during that time? Yeah, from the top down, we've had support for that program from the deputy, from basically the director general down. Yeah. So it's it had so much support from all the leadership team. Mm -hmm. But what we found is top down direction still doesn't fix the resistance mm -hmm. in the actual team using the, the technology. And the more we tried the top-down messaging, the more it felt like they were being forced into a corner of, you just have to do this work. Mm -hmm. I think it was far better. Well, I think it's good to do both. So you need mm -hmm. strong leadership on the top, but you also need a way to influence um, at the user level and I think the way to influence is through peers so peers that they respect and have a similar role or job to them I think that you get more traction through the peer network at least we did in that context mm -hmm. than we did from a lot of top-down messaging like you know the DG wants this the minister wants this mm -hmm. all of Queensland wants this project to succeed there's a lot of pressure um 
now you need to just follow our lead and do X, Y, Z. And I think especially with very intelligent, you know, PhD people that we're dealing with here, they don't respond well to just being told. They need to come to the conclusion themselves that this is the best way forward and they need to see evidence. They need to see that you know what you're doing, that you've, you've demonstrated success and then they're willing to engage with you from there. But we certainly did try a lot of the strong leadership mm. from the top. It just in some instances isn't enough to carry it all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's um, that's a really good good lesson to share as well. And then, how did you go um, moving? Or well, I guess how did you go finding the new, the second group? Um, and and because I love the approach of of searching for the coalition of the willing and trying to identify people that are, are more ready for the game, for the change, ready to for something something different, and that want to be engaged. But how how did you go about? finding that group? Yeah, we found that it was through conversations. And so we'd done a lot of, you know, again, requirements gathering across the entire um, cohort of scientists. And we found that there were some that were just very interested from the outset, as soon as we spoke with them about, well, what do you want to do with data in general? What are your pain points? And some of them immediately said, look, anything you can do to help me, I'm I'm happy to be part of that. So I think um, people volunteered along the way. And the more we explained what we were doing and promoted our project internally, the more we had people just approaching us to say, is there an opportunity? I'm interested in the new technologies. We chose the Azure, Azure stack mm-hmm. um, and some of them were very keen to engage with that and say, well, I want to learn more about what that tool set can give me and I want to explore the machine learning advanced analytics side and how do I sign up? So uh, those people just sort of emerged and mm-hmm. because they tend to be the ones that are more keen to take risk and explore and um, adopt. And so the early adopter crowd, I think just communicating and being open with the broad audience, we found that those people naturally just popped up on our radar. And I think once we engaged with them and they became almost like our core group of users or our champions in effect um, they were then able to go back and share what they learned with their peer groups in community practices or other meetings that they had and it just spread the word organically Um, although we had like structured comms campaigns I think the best way we got the message out was just through the peer network amazing Amazing. That's so good. And that's um, something that often analytics teams don't do enough of, like of the, of the, the engagement, the communication, um, hearing and understanding people's reservations and, and then kind of working through through them that sometimes, um, and, and I see it in myself, um, that sometimes we want kind of to lead with our work and to think that, you know, if the work's good enough, then people are going to flock to it, but they won't if you don't focus and and um, deliver on the human side, which is what you're, um, you've done so well. I wanted to ask you, what, are, what have been some of the, the main 
fears or concerns that people have had uh, during the process and how have you appeased them? Yeah, definitely. I think this will resonate with anyone that works with data, but we heard a lot of concern upfront about like security. So obviously cybersecurity is very topical right now, uh, but in general, security came up repeatedly and you know, around scientific data, you might have some data sets that are um, sort of highly secure. In our case, we had a threatened species register that tracks all the endangered species of plants and wildlife and where they're located, which can be um, used for, you know, poaching and yeah. people can sell those things on the black market. So it was really important that we protect some of that data And the way that we traditionally had our security set up, it was very perimeter-based. So there wasn't a lot of, um, I guess, segregation within. There was some, but it wasn't very sophisticated. So there was concern about our our theme of open data. And that was a big part of our program was trying to open up and share data. So we had an open data policy or principle to -hmm. begin with. And obviously, there's exceptions to that. So Mm -hmm. once we'd addressed that and said, well, we will be 99% open except for these few use cases which have a proper rationale and we will secure them um, and ensure that those things are protected. But for the most part, the scientific data should be open and shareable so other scientists can use it and we all gain better insights by sharing. Mm -hmm. So... Um, That was the first hurdle. And there's also, uh, I guess, fear. Whoever's collected the data worries about who's going to use my data for some purpose that I'm not aware of. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they will take my collection and change the context of it or change the data set itself. And so there were fears about how will the data be used once I open up my data to essentially the whole world. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there's research grants that come with certain research. So we had to allay those fears as though if, you know, if your if your data is confidential in that you're publishing a paper, that's fine. We'll put that in a separate category as well. But again, for the most part, everything that we collect should be open and available for use. So I think that first hurdle was difficult. And then after that came questions about the manual data processing load being removed or reduced by using automation and using the cloud platform that does that transformation and it does the anomaly detection and a lot of things that were done by humans especially in the plan and collect phase of the data lifecycle in collating all the data. There was so much effort in manually doing that and retyping data between different um, systems and, you know, from paper-based, you know, field capture and also real-time sensors. We had so much data, but inefficient ways of using it. So then there came the trust question of, well, how do I trust that? whatever goes into the platform and comes out again is trusted. Mm. And so then you have to go through quality assurance and talking about lineage and version control and all those sorts of things to make sure that there is a sense that 
these things are being tracked and captured and they are repeatable and you can see where the insight came from. You can trace it all the way back to the raw data. Um, so that ended up building trust. Um, and then we had to explain that people's jobs were not on the line. Part of this was not to downsize at all. Mm. It was to do better science more effectively, use the incredible knowledge that people have, take them away from the data wrangling where they were spending hours and hours of their day cleaning up in Excel data sets. Like they would spend weeks and weeks on it at various points of their collection cycle. And by saying, well, that will be removed, it's not that your job's not needed, but now you can spend that time on the analysis, which is the high value that you bring as a scientific specialist. So when people heard that, I think then they started to get more excited about it and less worried about, well, if no one's doing this data processing, then why am I here? And so you have to reframe people's jobs to be, I guess, give them a sense of what it will look like in the new world after the transformation. And we did that through what we call storytelling or day in the life of a scientist, where we described what that would be like from 8 a.m. all the way to like your end of day. What would it look like? And that really helped people understand the change of, okay, so my four hours of Excel, you know, cleaning every day would be replaced with, oh, I get to just review all the data that comes in on a nice clean dashboard. I can then explore any anomalies myself and I can trace that and then have a look at what modeling I want to do and work with our data science team on creating new models. And that that became exciting for people saying, oh, so I'm still needed. I'm still valuable, but Actually, I'm doing higher value work and less of them. I would call it lower level wrangling tasks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. That's excellent. Um, yeah, I can see people both being fearful at the beginning, but then getting excited by the by the promise and um and what the new world would look like. So I I love that that approach. Um, and that would have, yeah, definitely got people engaged and excited um, and involved. That's great. And then once you had the kind of the first the first team um, of of people that engaged and and then they started to work in the in the new world, in the new platform, new approaches. Um, what did it look like to scale that across the rest of the organization? Yeah, scaling is the challenge. Mm. Uh, I don't think we've quite cracked that yet. Um, I I still keep in touch with my team over there at in science and environment, and they still are struggling with scaling. I think it's fair enough to do it on two or three use cases, but once you're getting into even more complexity and bringing more people on board, um, it's difficult if you've got a small team. So I think their approach would be to prioritize all the use cases that are out there and work with each group um, sort of one or two at a time in small enough groups that you can manage. And as the transformations happen, we will have repeatable patterns that we'll be able to say, look, your use case fits this data pattern. It might not be identical, but say you use real-time sensors and you have a time series uh, data model. So look, we've got a similar one and it will make 
savings in that we're not starting from scratch because we have patterns already available in our platform that we could then reuse Mm -hmm. and just adjust slightly to meet the stakeholder requirements. So that's the intention with the scaling is once you get enough, I guess, critical mass of use cases, then everything should be fairly much uh, just a version of what's already been done. So that's our intention with scaling is create enough patterns to then be able to just reuse and very quickly onboard all the other use cases. Yeah, very nice, very nice. And I can see that the that the human side will need sort of continual uh, work every time to to engage and win over those people and get them into the new world. But that from a tech delivery side, um, there can be a lot more reusability over time. Um, that that sounds really great. And were there any particular use cases or applications that you were um, very excited about, or ones that that really um, I don't know won you over? Uh, any ones that you that you particularly enjoyed? Yeah, there's um, probably one I always think about is our digitization of the herbarium specimen. So Mm -hmm. um, Queensland has a lot of a really large repository. I think it's 800,000 specimens that have been collected since the first fleet came and explored Australia. So we have specimens dating back, um, you know, hundreds of years that have been preserved and kept in this one building. And there's, they're essentially uh, so valuable, you couldn't even, rep- they're, they're irreplaceable, basically, specimens. So the difficulty we were having is that all around the world, people want to research and they want access mm-hmm. to those specimens. So one of the things we did was we used high resolution imagery to um, digitize and take very, very fine um, images of all of these high value specimens. And we've done 200,000 of the 800,000 um, collections so far. And they're all the oldest and most precious specimens are now fully digital. So you can zoom in on the tiny fibers and um, the, the small little veins on the leaves. And you can almost, in effect, feel like you've you've got the specimen in your hand. So that was amazing. And it unlocked other opportunities around machine learning, which we hadn't really considered in that, you know, once we had a certain number of images about a certain species of plant that Mm -hmm. we could then train a machine to automatically identify that species and we realized that this could be used for research. And so we opened it up to Griffith University and they had a, a PhD student that took our data set, our digital images and built a model to help um, predict where a legume disease was spreading through um, the environment. And they could see oh. what was a native species and what was this sort of weed pest species just by using the machine data and the satellite imagery. So then we had um, the same thing with banana um, crops having disease spread and we could map where the disease was likely to spread to just using the satellite data that the machine model became so good at picking a banana plant out of all other types of plants that we were then able to really like identify and stop the spread of disease in plants. So you could see how that use case can now be expanded to almost any other type of plant 
now that we have this capability. So uh, it helps with bushfire recovery. We can see how areas are regenerating after a massive bushfire, which we get quite a lot of. Um, we can look at fire scar mapping and we can get really good resolution on um, on that as well because we've got petabytes of data that we ingest, but we just weren't using it before. So I think to me, that was really exciting. We're bringing together, we digitized some images. We had this satellite imagery. We have high performance computing and we brought it all together to be able to create these new insights and be able to use it in a real world setting to manage environmental resources, which are really precious to everyone. And, you know, it has agricultural benefits in that farmers can use it to help manage their land. It has government regulation type applications so that we can make better policies on land use and say like, oh, well, you know, this species is getting out of control. Maybe we need to try to do something to, um, you know, prevent the spread of that or to, on the other hand, there's a species that's dying off and we need to plant more of that particular species to regenerate the environment. So, I mean, it's really exciting when you see the tech transform into something that's tangible and it's making a real world difference and on a very large scale as well. So that was probably my most exciting use case from that project. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That is that is phenomenal. And I love that as as you were progressing, you were unlocking new capabilities um, that hadn't been considered before. So it's kind of like you're standing on a higher platform as you're delivering work and being able to see more opportunities and going to the next one and the next one. So building upon that over time would have been so satisfying uh, from, from a professional perspective uh, to see not only the progress, but then the, the new opportunities to make a difference. Uh, that's That's phenomenal. Yeah, that's the thing. As you said, it, it sort of evolved. We didn't initially set out to do all of, I guess, that that huge impact, but we just took it step by step and said, well, let's just digitize these, these specimens first. And then that naturally led to, well, what else can we do with these? And now we share them worldwide. So anyone in the world can now look at um, the flora specimens that we have in our state Um so the, and there are some really unique, beautiful plants out there that people want to research. And so you can get access to that very easily. Click of a button. You don't need to go through customs and quarantine mm -hmm. and a huge process we used to have to share or loan a specimen and try to get it back. Um, and that often get damaged and all of that stuff. So that was our first goal. But as you said, Philippe, then we just realized that we unlocked more potential to do more with that data once we had it. And the more we shared it, the more people approached us in terms of how they could use it. So I think one of the lessons was if you can make your data open, as in it's not sensitive, then it's so valuable to do that because it allows others to work, you know, build on what you've done and take it in a new direction that you might not have even thought of yourself. I love it. I love it. That is amazing. That is amazing. No, um, like a huge, huge congrats uh, for everything that you achieved there. And then I, I, uh, that, that led on to you also winning a really exciting award uh, recently. Um, so congratulations. So um, actually, I'll ask you, tell us, tell us about, about that, about the, um, the award that you recently won. 
Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, that was a, a really amazing moment in my career. But um, it was around the science work that we did. Um, so I just won the data leader of the year for women in digital for 2022, which was amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And then I also won the second award, which was like never happened before. It was for digital transformation for the same program. So two categories. It was it was really amazing. I was I was in shock the whole night, but uh, just even being part of that process, though, Philippe, amazing projects that were put up for consideration. You just think, wow, there's a lot of really good stuff out there. And I think women being more involved in these projects has been really nice to see that there's more female participation coming in. And um, yeah, I think that's what these awards are trying to recognize is that we're getting uh, what was traditionally a very male, you know, analytical mm -hmm. tech field. And there's more females being attracted into that industry now, which is is great. And it's like our teams are about 40 to almost 50% female at various times. So I think that was really nice. It was a good mix in our team. And we we really liked having that that gender balance and the diversity, which I think helped our team become more high performing in certain areas because everyone brings their own, I guess, um, complementary skills and things like communicating can sometimes be um you know maybe it's more of a female trait to, that you do communicate a bit more I'm not saying that in, for everyone but just in general I think it brought a lot of um yeah it, it really benefited our team by having that that mix of people and and the more I work with data suppliers and consultancies, the more I realize that there are a higher proportion of females out there. So I'm just really excited. And I hope that these awards really encourage more women to get involved in the field because it's it's a great, exciting place to work. It is, isn't it? And I completely yeah. agree that the the having gender balance definitely complements uh, the, the, the team and, and being makes a team such um, much more impactful in terms of what what can be done by having the different perspectives and people with different strengths and and natural strengths that they can tap into and something that yeah you've done uh, so well so well with your career so congratulations congratulations on you know all the work around that um, you know digital transformation that you were saying it was like five or six years and uh, the amount of of work um, is phenomenal the achievements you know speak for themselves and then leading up to winning two awards uh, on the same on the same yeah. as, a, as a you know new record that, that hadn't happened before that's phenomenal so congratulations and thank you. oh and thank you so much for taking the time to come and share um, not only your your journey but your insights, uh, your your learnings uh, and your perspectives through uh, throughout your career. Thanks so much for sharing that with us and for all the amazing work that you've been doing out there. So thank you so much. Thanks, Philippe. And yeah, I've got to say that it's um you know although I was the lead on the that program, it really came down to the amazing talent of the people that I worked with, and I just think that you know, we often do a lot of work behind the scenes that people don't recognize. So I think when I, w when I won that award, I really felt like it belonged to 
the whole team because without the data scientists, the engineers, the architects, mm. the experts in the field, they all came together. Like we wouldn't have been successful. And I'm just really privileged that I got to lead that team. But it's really amazing when you have a high performing team and it all comes together. It can you can achieve some really amazing things. So I'm just so grateful for that. It's been amazing. So good. Thank you. Thank you so much. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.